Hi, welcome to the Business Vitality Podcast. I am your host, Katherine Canty. You can learn more about me and my team at KatherineCanty.com. For more than two decades, I have been able to travel the country and help other people grow their business. From those experiences, I was able to work with a proposal team that generated success 90% of the time for over a decade. We have created a leadership coaching program that is creating 100% measured results as seen by the leaders, peers, and stakeholders. And finally, I've spent nearly a decade in boardrooms, corporate boardrooms, where we are learning what's working and what's not. And more importantly, we're able to take the communication from the boardroom and get it down to the front line so execution is easier to implement. You know, from all these experiences, we created a framework called Business Vitality. These are all of the best practices of leaders and and opportunities that have been coming up decade after decade. And a lot of this stuff has been in practice for more than 20 years, 30 years and beyond. And what we're learning is a lot of these folks that are remaining vital in business today are having to think differently. And to share a quote from one of my CEOs that I've worked with in the past, he told me all day long he can hire folks, but what he needs more of are people who think outside the box. So in an effort to pay it forward and celebrate successes, we are going to be sharing stories of leaders who are thinking differently and remaining vital in business today. Please stick to the end and we will share how you can be a guest on the show. And thanks so much for being here. Bob Mesta, you are with Rewired Group, found on the web at therewiredgroup.com. Yep. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Bob. So tell me, at a very high level, what is Rewired Group and what do you do? So uh, the Rewired Group is my, I want to say seventh, or I, I think it's my seventh startup. Um, and basically, I've been doing it actually for 10 years. Uh, but it is, it's a small uh, boutique uh, kind of design and development firm where we help people develop and launch new products. Um, throughout my career, I've worked on over 3,500 different products and services, and I've learned from what I call the masters, which I'm going to say, hold on, this is, is this four? Yep. Those are my four mentors who basically poured all their knowledge into, a, uh, into me. And uh, I've been uh, uh, lucky enough to have the opportunity to work on just so many different projects over the, over the years. Um, and to be honest, I'm now at the point where I want to be able to share and, and help other people apply and do this. You are a master teacher. So I just want uh, to say thank you. You've taken a lot of time um, just to be able to share the work that you've done when I was with Farm Credit. And um, I appreciate you taking time today to do that. So you flashed a, a picture of your four mentors that, yes. that taught you. Do you mind talking about these individuals and, yes. and a little bit about how yes. they created so, that impact? So if we start, uh, I always talk about them as one, two, three, and four, and and this is they're in my office here. And one of the things that I always say is they're looking down on me, making sure that I stay humble and that I that I continue to uh, push forward through the methods and tools that they taught me. Number one is Dr. Willie Hobbs Moore. Uh, she was my first boss at Ford. She had a she was the first African American woman to graduate from the University of Michigan with a uh, PhD in uh, particle physics. Um, and she taught me to be a real engineer and, uh, uh, we'll talk about tools and methods that she got to me. Uh, another one is Dr. The number two is Dr. Genichi Taguchi, who is, um, to be honest, he's probably one of the best engineers I've ever met in my life. He basically, uh, 
developed methods and tools and won in Japan the Deming Prize personally for his advancements in uh, engineering techniques and methods. And I worked under him for about seven years. And then uh, number three is Clay Christensen, who is, uh, <clears throat> you know, basically he's a mentor, a uh, teacher, and a friend. Uh, basically, we had four hours a quarter for 27 years and basically we're, we're able to come up with jobs to be done theory out of uh, our collaboration. And the last one is Dr. Deming, is who's somebody who I met when I was 19 years old, who uh, changed my entire course of my life, but also was the, the uh, father of quality um, and went to Japan and was the um, um, the person who created the Toyota production system and and all of its uh, derivatives off of that uh, through Lean and Six Sigma and all that stuff. And so I've been lucky enough to have those people be part of my life and teach me. Um, and as they taught me, I'm, my job is to teach now. Not that I ever really want to be a teacher or think that I'm qualified to be one, but I'm working hard to kind of make sure I can pass on their knowledge that they passed to me. That's very kind. And I think you are extremely qualified to keep teaching. Um, I love just to be able to capture best practices and ideas that have worked over the years that continue to succeed and just keep paying it forward. So I appreciate you doing that. Can you kind of talk about how did you get into this line of work? Did you always know you were going going to be an engineer? And um, I think yeah. there's some entertaining I, stories behind that. Yeah, I always say I was uh, uh, I came out of the womb, I think, an engineer. Um to my mom's dismay, um, as one of those things, I, I'm 56. So I say I've been breaking things for at least 50 years, maybe 55 years. But the thing is, is when you start breaking things, you start to realize that to get out of trouble, you learn how to fix things pretty quickly. And so I got into fixing things very young and have been fixing things for at least 40 years, 45 years or so. But ultimately, um, I've always liked to build things. Um, built forts and ramps and parachutes and ram, you know, all these different things, bikes, uh, speakers, like all these things as a kid and always really love to put things together and know how things work. So curiosity has kind of been in my, in my, in my blood. Um, so to me, I think I was predisposed to be, you know, an engineer and, and develop things, but ultimately I've, I've worked in, uh, you know, automotive, I've worked in uh, defense, I've worked in food, I've worked in uh, software, I've worked in uh, uh, hardware, I've worked in consumer electronics, I've worked in medical, I've worked in all these different industries. And I feel like the skills that, that my mentors gave me uh, combined with my passion for kind of building things has enabled me to kind of show up at the doorstep of usually when people have either a big problem that they can't solve or they've tried five different ways and they haven't been able to do it. And what what my mentors taught me is like, it's not about basically how smart you are. It's about the methods you have to actually learn and how do you learn as fast as you can. And so all of them have taught me different ways and different different approaches to being able to figure out things empirically and, and come to uh, if you will, create the best practices as opposed to, because again, I don't know the best practice and in theory you can derive it, but the reality is, is that at most of the time anomalies happen all the time. And so it's all about being humble and, and iterating and prototyping as fast as you can. I love it. And I love how um, nimble you are throughout the whole process and just being creative and, and curious and leaning in to the challenges and struggles that come towards you. Yeah, we were, um, we were, we were just talking about this where, how do, how do we like when we're stuck, how do we get unstuck? And part of this is being very sensitive to kind of the team that we're working with. And when are we actually, you know, kind of going down the rabbit hole? When are we actually, when, when does the team actually have energy? When do individuals have energy to do the other work? 
and being able to be very sensitive to kind of how how we work and that everybody works a little bit differently. And so trying to have everybody conform actually makes everybody kind of work at their, not their optimal. And so part of it is to realize and study the work and how to actually help people be uh, creative and create things is, is a, is a, is a passion of mine for sure. So, okay, well, let's, I've got a couple of questions, but let's take that topic that you're sharing right now. I'm actually doing a working with a team and these are the senior leaders of an organization that has had incredible growth, um, continue to just outdo themselves year over year and time management is the topic. And so we are trying to work together as a team to create more time in the day, create more efficiencies. And I think part of this is taking a step back and realizing what's working and what's not working. But can you tell me a little bit about what you were just saying as far as time and teams and and that information? So first of all, I just want to, again, articulate, I think it's camera four. Yes. Number two up there, Dr. Taguchi, he, so I was maybe 19 years old, 20 years old when I was in Japan and, and he was 65 or so. And he, he, as I was leaving, he basically presented me a, a watch, a Seiko watch. And one of the things he talked about and told me was that time is the most precious of all resources, that, that um, you, can't, uh, you can't save it. You need to spend it as wisely as you can. And somebody who steals your time is worse than a thief and be wary of those people. And so time has always been one of those things where um, I've realized that has been very, very important. And to be honest, it's it's you've got to be able, you've got to be explicit in how you manage those things. I think at the at the same time, the fact is is to like the first thing is is when people don't have time, what it really means is they don't have priority. Mm. And 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 priority to me is about the sequence of things that have to happen. And at the same time, um, they have the let's see, what, how do I say it? The, the, they're, what they're trying to do is they either can't say no, or they don't know how to say no, or they're actually uh, not actually making too much uh, enough traction. So one of the things I realized is there was a study back in the, in the 90s by a gentleman by the name of Kim B. Clark. And uh, Kim Clark was the, he ended up being the dean of the business school at Harvard, but he, he talked about the where's the, the, the maximum efficiency for a team to work in terms of number of things to work on. And it turns out it's around five, five plus or minus two, if you will. But but you have to realize every time you're working on one thing, everything else sits in inventory and waits for you to work on it. The other thing we don't actually realize is we don't realize that there are interdependence between the work. So if I learn something here, it's actually going to be applicable over there. And so part of this is to take the time to actually, what we talk about is find the natural priority of the work. So if you make a list of all the things you have to do, and you put them into buckets of kind of like like work that you have to do and say, if I do this work, does it help me with this other work? You start to realize that there's a natural sequence or a nat- natural priority or a, a, a sequence of things to actually be done. And so you start to realize that, that things build on each other. And this is one of the ways in which, for example, I've been able to help companies reduce their product development cycle time by half because you actually don't base it on the priority of uh, uh, if you will, what's most important to the customer or what's most important uh, time-wise or, or uh, money-wise, but more where are the biggest unknowns and what's the sequence of things that have to be done. And you, once you see it that way, you actually can do things way faster. And so for your executive team, a lot of times it's just priority that they 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 don't actually know how to prioritize. And so they're d- dividing their day up into smaller and smaller increments. 
And my suggestion is to actually build themselves into bigger and bigger increments, but have, for example, one of the things I do is I have office hours where it's like anybody can walk in and talk through anything they want. Um, they don't have to have an appointment and we don't hold it to an hour. It's literally a conversation, but I have a window of time for office hours. And that's, and so that helps uh, people who report to me basically get clarity um, and, and for them to give me an update, but there's not the formal aspect of every week, we, very few standing meetings that we have. I think that, gosh, that's a lot of great information. I love that there's almost blocking of time, blocking of similarities. And when we last met in person as a group, we started talking about flow and getting these like items together and creating a flow. Mondays are are geared towards a certain topic. Maybe it's sales. Tuesday's more about the operational side. And they knew that they needed to start switching around meetings just because they were always there doesn't mean they need to stay there. And what you're saying is, you know, if people don't have time, they don't have their priorities set. And I think that is, is a great insight to be able to step back And also what you mentioned about, you know, a max of five things to work on, give or take two. Um, I think, I think it's vital just to be able to take a step back and embrace the fact that we're only here to do about five things at one time, give or take. Um, Do you have more thoughts? Yeah. I think the other part of this though, is, is that notion of progress. So, Mm -hmm. you know, me, I'm, I'm very big on the progress where what happens is uh, people want to do everything and finish something, right? Like I want to get this and to get this done. And the, the, the reality is, is that at some point in time by, time, by time blocking or basically building a time wall, it forces you to get the most that you can get out of something within a, the fixed period of time. And so ultimately, it's like, uh, I'd rather do two iterations of something than try to make something perfect out of the hat. I, uh, to be honest, I know I can't do it. And so instead of trying to fool myself and say, I know everything, it's like, I'm going to do a rough prototype of something and get it done and then basically have people test it. And then I'll come back to it in two weeks or come back to it in a week. But the fact is that the ability to shift topics and have latitude and to realize like what I learn about something in one, one set of work is going to help me with another set of work. And so constantly being able to read my energy and be able to understand how to um, understand being most real work happens alone. And most people think the meetings are the work. And the reality is, is that what you have to really do is start to understand when. So, so for example, one exercise I would do for your team uh, is basically ask them like, tell me about the last two or three really, really productive meetings you've had. And what was it about them that made it really productive? And tell me about the, the, the almost the two or three that were really, really wasteful. And unpack that, unpack those meetings to basically be able to say like, when meetings are set up for information only, for us just to share, for us to listen, for us to say yes, you know, the formality of yes is like, those are the waste time wasters. Like, how do we actually do that in a very different way? We might be able to do that even virtually, but when we need to actually collaborate and uh, bounce ideas and work in the moment and, you know, uh, prior make decisions and trade-offs, like those are when we need to be, you know, in the same room. And so part of this is, to, to take the time to actually understand why we should be getting together. So like in COVID, everybody's worried about like, are we going to go back to normal? Are we going to go half time, you know, half office, half home? My thing is, is this is what I'm actually having teams do is talk about what are the most valuable times when you are together and what's the most useful work to be doing when you are together and what work can you do when you're not together? 
All right, Bob, I don't know if that was a rhetorical question or not, but yeah. I'm going back to this team and we're going to have this as our next exercise when we get together. You know, yeah. what were two impactful meetings and what were two not so impactful yep. meetings and what were the themes and what can we take away? So yep. thank you for sharing that. And you know me, I will circle back yeah. with you and share. Yeah, yeah I'd love to know. So <laughs> the one the one other thing I would say is to have people instead of trying to figure out how what what things can they take off their plate? You need to create space to create time. And so a lot of times it's kind of like, what are the things that you either meet too often on? What are the things that you don't need to meet at all about? What are the things you can handle through a a process or a procedure? So there's other things where you can start talking about. If you start to create space for them, then there's actually then time to actually put, put new things in it. But if you're just trying to fit something in between everything else, it's like at some point it's just not, it doesn't, it doesn't work. No, and I, I don't think there could be enough emphasis on virtual assistants and all these other people, this talent that's growing around us that want the opportunity to be able to step in and help. And so get delegating and pushing that out and creating space to be able yep. to reflect and grow is, is a part of the process. Yep. And that's how the business can continue to keep growing and, and continue to do great things. Absolutely. Okay. So I'm going to change this just a little bit. Um, you mentioned something of this phrase, like this kind of odd phrase called jobs to be done. Yeah. And was that, tell me, was that number two or number three that introduced that idea to you? Um, so it, it, it's, so jobs to be done, uh, it, it came from number two in terms of, I, I used it primarily on the engineering side to talk about functions and what, what systems do, like what job does this system do, if you will. But ultimately, Clay, uh, Clay and I basically collaborated to create it to say, like, how do we understand customers and using that frame around what job do customers have in their lives and what progress are they trying to make? And so um, over the last 30 years, I've been using this as kind of uh, one of the underlying frames of how I see innovations. But Clay took it and helped create it into a management theory. And so we call it jobs to be done theory. And it's it's this aspect of trying to actually understand not the solution people want, but the, but if you will, the problem that they're trying to solve, the, the context that they're in and the outcomes that they want, and ultimately realize that we're creating the boundaries of what the solution needs to do that are irrelevant or not connected to the actual solution I can produce. So it's, it's trying to create a, a way in which to see what the customer is actually trying to get done without talking about the way in which to do it. Okay. So can you, do you have a, a, maybe a certain success story of where this worked, where Uh, people are just new to this idea, jobs to be done and, and, you know, demand side sales. Can you give an example of of how this worked? Yep. So, and so let's talk about it just from, from a simple product perspective, right? And the thing is, is most people would think that uh, Snickers, uh, the candy bar and Milky Way compete with each other, right? They're both made of chocolate. They're both actually made by Mars. They're, they sit on the candy aisle. And, and if you ask people, like, you know, what do they like about Snickers? It's going to be all oh, the chocolate, the, the, the peanuts and Milky Way would be, you know, something else. But the reality is, is, like, you can have all these attributes around the product and you can have all these attributes around the customer. But the thing that actually starts to distinguish what causes people to say today's the day they're, they, they're going to eat a Snickers or today this is the day they're going to eat a Milky Way is that they actually don't compete in the consumer's mind at all. So a Snickers is typically eaten when uh, they've missed a meal, their stomach is growling, they still have work to do, they don't want to spoil the next meal, and it's kind of like, I need to mainline some form of food 
to basically help me get through this busy draining moment. And it competes with a cup of coffee and it competes with, you know, a sandwich and it competes with a Red Bull and it's it competitive. But most people, when they think of a Snickers, they're not thinking a Milky Way, they're thinking something else. And if you look at people around the Milky Way, it's typically after something emotional, whether it's positive or negative, it's usually done by themselves. It's taking a moment to regroup and basically, you know, take some time. And, and, and so they eat it over a longer period of time. And so you start to realize that it competes with like ice cream and wine and to be honest, a run. And so when you look at, talk to people about kind of when they're going to do use these things, it's actually nothing around the product attributes actually signal those different jobs besides the fact that one will say, oh, it's packed with peanuts. And it really, that's about how they get it to their hunger. But to re- the reality is, is that most marketers would say that, that they compete because they're both candy bars and they're both in the candy industry. And yet Snickers is the largest single skew candy selling product in the world, right? And so part of this is to realize that context creates value and contrast creates meaning. And so by understanding the context somebody's in and the outcomes they want, I actually understand what we would call the true comp- the true competitors, as well as what are the hiring and firing criteria for it. So talk about the context a little bit yep. and, and what that means. Yeah. So context turns out, so like I, I'll ask people, do you like, you know, do you like steak or do you like hot dogs? And the fact is, is like most people say, well, I like both. But if you actually take a hot dog situation, which is I have four kids, they all play ice hockey. They were trying to run them around a different school, like school between school and rinks and everything else. And hot dogs is like one of those things where not as is not as healthy as I want it to be. But at the same time, I can get it on the table. They can all I know they're all going to eat it. I know that they can have other things with it and we can be done with dinner in 15 minutes. Right. So but if I try to put steak in that situation, it doesn't work. And if I take a steak situation, the last time I had steaks is like, and I think about what I try to celebrate taking, you know, taking some time and have some good wine with it, enjoying that moment. It's like, yeah, hot dogs don't do that either. And so you realize that context actually creates value around things. And most of the time, what we're actually trying to do is talk about the people that buy it as opposed to the, not the, not only the who, but when, where, and why they're buying it. And that's really what we're trying to get to. And that actually helps us understand one, how to help them if you will, stop selling them and help them buy. It helps us understand that we don't need the best thing in the world. We only need the thing that's actually important for that context. And you start to realize that there's way more opportunity than there than, than we see because we're thinking about direct competitors as opposed to struggling moments. I love it. All right. So there's a lot of people and, and there's just like a big push about um, social media ads and campaigns and that type uh, of information. How does jobs to be done and demand side sales? Are there any links there or yeah. connections? I don't. So, I'm so curious to your thoughts. So here's the thing: is that that nobody buys anything randomly. They might have done it unplanned, but the fact is, there's something going on in their life that basically says whatever they're doing today isn't working, and they need something different, or they see something and say, "Boy, what I'm doing isn't good enough, and I can do something else." but they have to have a struggling moment to start. And so social media actually has a, has a very easy way of ha- making people aware of their struggles and actually helping them see possibilities of what can help them. And so you start to realize like, but the thing is, is we think that when, as soon as somebody has interest that they actually should buy, right? And so they're all trying to convert too fast. And so I always talk about the difference between the sales funnel and the buying timeline and how people buy and, and to make progress is very different than how we run our sales funnel. And so in a lot of cases, just because somebody has an interest, we think we should close them and we should have a close rate. But the reality is, is like they have to be in the right context. 
They actually have to know. So for example, we talk about these four forces that are at play that cause people to buy something new. There's a push of the situation. There's a pull of the, of the new solution or the new outcome. There's some anxiety around that new solution. And then there's habits that they have. And a lot of times people can't actually make the decision to do something, not because of the, the features and the benefits or the push and the pull, but because of the anxiety and the habits they have to break. And so part of this is being able to see how people actually make that progress and then helping others make that progress as well. Sales funnel versus buy timeline. Buyer timeline, yep. I think there's some confusion with that in the marketplace. Um, uh, they want to they close deals, but not everybody's yep. ready. Well, so here's the thing is that... that the interesting part is so like I did, a, 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 I've been working with a, a group here uh, called AutoBooks. And one of the things we were able to do is help them reframe kind of their whole sales funnel around kind of where are people in their buying timeline. And the buying timeline is there's something called the first thought that actually creates the space in the brain for a solution to fall into. And then there's passive looking, which is where they're kind of researching and learning about the problem and what are potential solutions. And then there's active looking where they actually start to become very, very, um, explicit about what they want, though they don't know at all. And they, they typically want everything. And then, and then they go to deciding and deciding is actually about trade-offs and deciding what they're willing to give up in order to get. And so you start to realize that too many people feel if I just add enough features, people will buy. But the reality is there's a whole other set of context wrapped around their life that we need to be able to understand. And if we, if we just focus on our sales funnel, we actually aren't really as sensitive to their context and what outcomes they're really trying to make. And so by doing that, we're able to actually understand one is like, for example, they had a demo and they figured like, well, how do we actually do emails to get to, to get to phone calls that get to a demo and then the demo we close. And I kept going like, well, where are they in the timeline? And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, if they're in passive looking and they're asking for a demo, they want a demo with just them because they want to learn versus a demo with a big team is probably more active looking or even in deciding. And so part of this is I would actually have really different demos based on where they are in the timeline. So we end up dividing it up and actually creating three different demos, one for passive looking, one for active looking, and one for deciding and, and, and very, very different demos. And ultimately what we were able to do is almost double the conversion rate for them. And at the same time, half the sales, the sales timeline, because most of the time we actually hit them at the wrong time and we tell them too much or too little based on where they're at. All right. So talk some more about that because not everybody understands that there are different buyer timelines and I've been following auto books and yeah. I think it's a great disruptor to traditional banking. And God knows I've spent a lot of time in traditional yep. banking decades. And so you see all these different ideas coming at you. I think they have a great solution. Um, but can you talk about how they're tailoring their yeah their solutions to the different buyer timelines so, and what so what's interesting is is if you think about it so they they actually build uh they they enable banks to do what i would call what uh you know paypal and venmo and square like things like that to so people can actually pay bills and receive funds on their cell phone through sms texting and it's just it lays into the infrastructure and now and gives them those capabilities if you will and the, the, the reality is they actually have two sets of customers they have to satisfy. One is the small business owner. So these are people who can't make QuickBooks work, right? They're painters, they're carpenters, they might be uh, 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 people who are um, 
you know, uh, doing, uh, you know, uh, haircutting, all these different kinds of services where you can literally say, like, I'm going to send you a text and, and, it, and it comes up with the bank's name and you put your information in and it basically goes right into your account. Right. And and so part of it is to actually understand the jobs that would cause somebody to say, today's the day I need a new way to take money. Mm-hmm. Or my, uh, you know, my uh, credit card processor is, is, is horrible and I want to find somebody new, right? So that's one set of progress. The other set of progress is the bank. What progress does the bank want to make by basically adding this feature set in, right? Which is I want to, I want to get more small businesses. In, I want to grow my small business market. I want to actually increase deposits. I want to be able to do, and you start to have these different things that happen. And, and what you really need to do is align what the bank's progress means with the, with the, with the you know, the, I'll say the small business owner progress. And once you see that, that's when the innovation actually starts to take place. And that's how they're really kind of taking off. So when you bridge what the company is able to define a success and yes. what the prospect can can agree that this is where they're heading and bridge this stuff together, yep. that's where the two begin to elevate and take it to the next level. That's right. That's right. Okay. And and to be honest, and to identify the trade-offs. So one of the things we actually help them do is define instead of giving them one proposal to give people three proposals, three different ways to start. Right. And what happens is the way that most companies or most people make decisions is they don't actually pick the one they want. They eliminate the one they don't want first. And they've made a decision to say, nope, I don't want that. And so that one's out. And then what happens is they take the two that are left and they don't actually compare them to each other. They compare them to the one they decided was out. And so ultimately they eliminate one of those two. And so they end up with picking one, but they actually didn't pick one. They eliminated two. Because more people. I more love people, that decision making. Well, more people more people know what they don't want than what they want. And they'll all say, I know it when I see it. And so part of this is by studying and understanding how people make decisions, it's it's a lot more what we what I call by elimination theory than it is by inclusion theory. Yeah. Like I, I like if you ask people what they want, they'll say, oh, you know, I want it to be easy. And I'll say, well, what does easy mean? And they're like, I, I, I don't know. And you'll say, all right, so what makes it hard? And then they'll, well, it's too long. It's too many steps. Like they can give you a thousand reasons why it doesn't work. Yeah. And so all of a sudden it's like, okay, I've surrounded it, but I still don't necessarily have all the understanding of what easy is, but I know what I have to actually meet because that's why they would eliminate me. All right. So you've, you've written a number of books. You've got this one, Demand Side Sales yep. uh, 101. Yep. You have a lot there's of a, great case two, studies. In there's there. a Talk 201 it. coming. It's, it's, it's really about, this is about the, if you will, the basic frameworks and tools to think about it. And then uh, 201 is really about uh, tools and techniques and, and uh, stories and ways in which to kind of make the rubber hit the road. Thank you for writing these books and sharing these ideas. I have, as we're beginning to close down, I, I want to ask, you know, you've got so many different things that are going on. You've patented over 3,500 products. You bring products to um, to the, the final, you know, customer user in half the time for probably half the cost, if I remember correctly. Yep. So yep. Um, you're making, making a lot of just great headway. So, and you're working a lot, but are you able to take time and step away yourself and recharge? And how important is that for you? Yeah. So I'll say this in the last uh, two years, I've really, uh, I've doubled down on uh, what I call sleep and figure out how to sleep and when to sleep and the quality of sleep. And to be honest, that's made a huge difference in terms of being able to, to both of my thinking abilities, as well as my ability to kind of either take on more or 
do do the same amount better or faster. And so part of this is 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 I think sleep. The other part is I realize that that everybody works at their own pace. And so one of the things that I, I coach uh, several people, and one of the things we we're talking about a lot is actually helping them understand the patterns and rhythms of their own, you know, kind of way that they work out and the way that they think and the way that they do work. And everybody's got to be flexible at some point, but if you actually understand your rhythms and understand kind of what kind of work you should be doing at what time, like, the, so for example, we we're, we're, we have this call is 11 o'clock, right? So I got here at five from five to, to almost nine. I do basically all my individual work that I need to do. And then from nine to basically uh, 11 or 12, I usually basically do teamwork. Um, but this is where my mind is kind of, uh, it's, it's not necessarily the sharpest, but it's at, it's at its closest to its peak. And this is why I try to do podcasts during this time frame, right? To try to do this podcast at four o'clock, it would be a completely different podcast, right? And so I think yes. part of this is knowing yourself and knowing when to rest. And um, I had... Uh, I had COVID uh, to be asked two times, um, but I had it really bad in the spring. And one of the things I realized is like, I just stopped everything and just said, I'm done. Like I gotta, I gotta focus on me. I took a month off and was able to kind of recover and get back to where I was. But it was one of those things where when you need, when something's wrong and you need to take the time, take the time. Life is too short. It's a lot of wisdom in that. Thank you for sharing that. And um, if folks want to learn more about your work and what you're doing, how do they learn more? Uh, I think the best source is LinkedIn. Um, I have a, the rewire group is just, it's just a, it's the, a, a, it talks about the business. And then I have a bobmesta.com, which is where I have a podcast like this one and other podcasts I've been on and then uh, where to find the books and that kind of stuff. So those, those are the two, three main places, but LinkedIn is typically, if you want uh, reach out more than happy to you know, interact. Uh, my whole thing is, is to pass on what I've learned to as many people as possible. And uh, I take Clay's view of, uh, I will be judged uh, in the end by the number of people that I've helped. So if I can help, please let me have that opportunity. Bob, thank you. And you've helped me a lot and I am forever grateful. So thank you very much. Pass um, it forward. <laughs> oh, I, I can't wait. And I've got folks that I want to, that I am paying it forward and they're asked how they can give it back. And I quickly respond. You have no idea how many people have helped me get here. So you That's tell right. me who else needs help and I'll be happy to just keep passing it on. Yep. Um, Bob Nesta, you are with the Rewired Group and sounds like you can be found easiest at LinkedIn at Bob Nesta. Thank yep. you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Catherine. My team and I just want to say thank you for tuning in to the Business Vitality Podcast. We really appreciate you being here. If you know of another leader, another CEO, a founder who has another success story that they are willing to share and be able to pay it forward, we would love to highlight their stories on this podcast. You can find more information at katherinecanty.com. And in the meantime, if you could take a minute and rate this show, that would be super helpful because that's going to allow more people like you to find us in order to continue to pay it forward. Again, if you need to learn any additional information, we are happy to help. You can find us more at katherinecanty.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn with my name, Katherine Canty. Thanks so much for being here.